0: In our home, anything related to Middle Earth is a hit, okay? So if we're sitting in the living room and we don't know what we're going to watch, hands down, we turn to Middle Earth. Whether it's one of the Hobbit movies or the Lord of the Rings movies or the Rings of Power series, we're all about it. And one of my favorite storylines with regard to tonight and where we're going in God's Word is the storyline of Thorin Oakenshield. And you remember maybe if you're familiar with the stories, if not, maybe this will provoke you to get a life and start watching the movies. Thorin Oakenshield, the, the whole, the whole story of The Hobbit is that he's looking to reclaim Erebor, the, the lonely mountain, the kingdom under the mountain that Smog, the, the dragon, the treasure dr- greedy dragon has stolen from the dwarves. And Thorne's obsessed with this. He's consumed by it. This is his heritage. This is his lineage. This is his people. This is his home. And finally, they reach the base of the mountain there at the uh, the lake village on the, what is it called? Why is that escaping my memory? Uh, Lord of the Lake, Lake Town, thank you, Lake Town. And there's this big drama between the Lord of the Lake and the people of Lake Town with Thorin and his small company of dwarves. And essentially, the, the drama goes down like this. Um, Bard the Boatman says, what, what gives you the right to take the mountain. And Thorin's response is, I have the only right. The problem is, Thorin's obsession with his right, which is valid, it's, it's legitimate, so consumes him that it alienates him, it isolates him, even against his own faithful men at one point. You see, we've we've received rights in the gospel. We've received freedom in the gospel. As Paul's going to say, and I want to make this very clear up front so you're going to hear this repeated, Paul's going to emphasize throughout his letter that all things are yours. You've got the world to come. We heard last time in chapter 6, you're going to rule the world. Don't you know that you're going to rule the world? All things are yours. But if you take that statement, and you obsess over it, and you think of nothing else, you will become self-preoccupied. And you'll forget that this freedom that Christ has purchased for us is not to serve self, but actually to slave away for others. So let me remind you, as we approach verses 12 to 20 of chapter 6, that Paul has sent a letter already to the Corinthians, this is the second letter, and they responded poorly, and so Chloe's people, we're not quite sure who they are, they inform Paul, we're not quite sure how, they inform him of how bad it's gotten there at this young church in Corinth, in this very worldly city. The church of Corinth writes Paul, or yes, the church of Corinth writes Paul with several questions how do we do this? What do we do about, about that? But Paul's response here in this second letter, we call 1 Corinthians, addresses serious issues that they didn't ask him about. He said, I realize that you've asked me a bunch of questions, but before we get to those things that you're curious about, you're ignoring some very serious things you should have written me about. And that's what the entire first five chapters has been addressing. And it starts essentially with a, a rally cry. Rally to Christ. Rally to our king. And we can't go after him without taking up our cross to follow him unto death. And so Paul basically puts out a call to the Corinthians. He says, we're the slaves Where are the slaves who look like our king? Our king who is God himself that that became a human, not just a human, but but a slave and died not just as a slave, but, but as a criminal on a cross in the stead of sinners. Who's boasting in him? Where are you at? Where are the true philosophers who realize that Jesus is the wisdom of God? Where have they gone? Who would happily endure the laughter of the elites of Oxbridge and the Ivy Leagues in order to know the King and Him crucified. No, I don't hear much about them. They're at the church in Corinth. Rather, I hear you're rallying to preachers. I hear that you're rallying and you're dividing over mortals whose value of work is not yet known. We're not going to know until judgment What is the value of Sam Musgrave's ministry or Chuck Shillitoe's ministry or Andre Salva's ministry? We could be doing this with all false motives and you're tearing apart the people of God. You're tearing apart the body of Christ. You're tearing apart the king himself from limb to limb when you do this. And don't you see that everything belongs to you? That everything is yours that every gift God has given to the church belongs to you 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 are heirs of the maker and so where are all the slaves of king Jesus who preferred to be the scum of the world the grime of all if only to bring him fame and to help his people where are they where, where have they gone where are those washed sanctified, justified by His blood, who labor to compassionately plead that sinners be saved and that Christians avoid sin. Where'd they go? You seem ignorant that you're going to rule the world. You seem ignorant that you're going to direct all of heaven's armies. You, the godly who will judge the world, are fighting one another before the world's judges. All this is so wrong. All who live like that without repentance will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're fooling themselves. You're fooling yourselves if you live in sexuality and worldliness and dishonesty and greed, addiction, unkindness, and manipulation for your own gain without repentance. You're you're totally fooling yourself. And he ends on a wonderful note. What sin would God not eradicate? What sinner would God not saint? What traitor would God not forgive to make his own son an heir? He loves doing this. Why would you remain in sin when Christ came into the world to save sinners? Why would you remain in sin when it's the Holy Spirit who, who lusts with envy for the spirit that he's made to dwell in you? Why would you stay in sin? You see. We've got three points tonight. I'm going to move through them. Point one, three points, Christian. Partial or poor theology, partial or poor theology leads to sin. Join me in verse 12 as we look. Now, really quickly, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever taken a scripture out of context? Good. That's the right answer. You have. I have. I can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens me? I just went and pr- uh, prayed with a bunch of law students at the San Joaquin College of Law before coming over here tonight. And I wonder how many of them were thinking about that verse, meaning, I'll pass this test even though I didn't study last night. Or I'll win this game even though I spent all night playing Call of Duty or whatever. How many times have we invoked this scripture to mean, oh, I could do anything. It's not what it means. It means very plainly that Christ will strengthen me to joyfully and obediently endure any life circumstances, fully content that He's working all things together for my good. That means if I fail the test, I can fail through him who strengthens me. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh. Plans for peace and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope means that God is a personal genie and never gives me more than I can handle. Right? Good. Or it means God won't bear a thing go wrong in my life that makes me unhappy. Right? That's how we've used it. No, God spoke that to Israel as a promise they can and must believe while he sets to send them into exile in Babylon for generations of rebellion. And the faithful did believe it. Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, Ezekiel believed it. Now, what concept did the Corinthian Christians take from Paul and twist up you remember how he told them again in this letter that all things belong to you he said all things belong to you now how can we take that wrongly how can we take that wrongly Paul almost mockingly quotes what is now a slogan in the church at Corinth. Now, some of you have quotations around this statement in your translation of the Bible. Some of you don't. But if you don't, put air quotes around these words All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are profitable. Air quotes, All things are lawful for me, end quote, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, Paul is quoting what the Corinthians are parading, okay? He quotes them twice. The grace of God in Christ means I can do anything. That's what the Corinthians are saying. Everything goes now for me. All things are legal. All things are authorized. And Paul says, whoa, wait. Everything is authorized? I never said that. does the king say that it's all beneficial for us? They say, you told us everything is now ours, Paul. And Paul replies, it sounds like you're enslaved to your desires. Why are you so obsessed with your rights? Why are you not more concerned with your responsibilities? Something's going on in your heart. I want to ask you guys something. What's one thing in your life that scripture does not uh, prohibit that has too much of your heart? You can't find chapter and verse that says, don't do this. But boy, it governs so much of your feelings, your thought life, your energy, your money maybe. Is that thing which scripture doesn't prohibit explicitly, is that thing advantageous in your pursuit of Christ? Or is it hindering it? What's that one thing that the word doesn't clearly forbid? And now, is that allowable thing controlling your heart? The worst bondage, often, can be slavery to unsinful things. Hebrews 12 tells you to throw off all the sin and the things that so easily entangle you. Oh wait, there are things that are not sin that easily entangle us? You better believe it. In chapter 8, Paul will slay their sense of entitlement. Chapter 8, verse 9, he says, see to it, that is, make sure that this liberty of yours, this is the same word that he's using here, this lawful idea, this right that you have, this entitlement that you have, this liberty, this freedom that you have, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. See to it. That's a command to obey. Now, there's this air among the Corinthians. There's this air of freedom and power to do as they please, to do what they wish. Chapter 10, verse 23, he repeats this. All things are lawful, you say, but not all things are profitable. You say, all things are lawful, but I say, not all things build up. So you're so worried about, hey, there's no chapter or verse that's, that's restricting this for me. But I'm asking you, are you making decisions, investing time and emotion and energy in the things that build others up and are to the advantage of your own pursuit of Christ? Or are you really just mastered by things that are not necessarily sinful but are not helping anyone, including you? Building and benefiting are never easy. I'll say that again. Building up other believers and benefiting yourself and other believers, never easy. Always hard. Always effort. It's always grunt work. It always requires death to self. And Paul performs a word play here on the idea of lawful. He says, while the Corinthians, well, he doesn't say this, while the Corinthians parade, we've got the right. He says, I won't give anything the right to rule me. I won't give anything the right to have its rights over me. It's a really interesting twist, isn't it? That's what he means by I won't be mastered by anything. I won't give anything the right to govern my affections and my thought life. I will be mastered by no thing except Christ. Freedom is not for self. I fall very heavily on the conservative side of the political spectrum. Not ashamed to admit that. The danger over there is to use your rights for self. Danger in any direction is self. Freedom is not for self. It is for self service. It is for the Lord who bought us. It is for our master. We are slaves. And he'll expand upon this as time goes on. Now, Christians waste time asking if something is alright instead of concerning themselves with what's best. How many of you guys, your conversations go like this? In relationship to really anything. Is this alright? How many how many times is your focus on, is this all right? Is this permissible? Why aren't you asking, is this best? Because if you're asking this best, this is best, I guarantee you, you'll stop asking, is this all right? If you have to ask, is it all right? It's so far from what's best that you're confused whether it's all right or not. Think about that. When you're chasing what's best and excellent and honorable and lovely, you don't ever have to think, is this all right? Entertainment isn't sinful. Alcohol isn't sinful. Fashion isn't sinful. Family isn't sinful. Academia, not sinful. Rest, not sinful. Food, not sinful. Everything is lawful. Everything is legal. Everything is permissible and authorized for us to enjoy. Right? Well, any of those things can become an idol. Any of those things can become the object of wicked worship. You can watch movies, you can play games, you can spend money, you can pursue romance, you can pursue success, comfort, pleasures. But who are you benefiting? Who does your life love? Verse 13, (laughs) food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Sound like a complete change topic, doesn't it? Paul, come on, you got ADD? You have ADHD, Paul? You can't stay on topic? What's going on here? What, would you believe me if I told you, I know this is going to sound shocking, would you believe me if I told you that Paul has one idea in mind from verse 12 to 20? He's not changing topic whatsoever. Verse 14, yet the body is not for sexual immoralities, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Now, really quickly, if you look very carefully, you will not miss that verse 14 perfectly reflects verse 13. It's a tool known as parallelism, which Hebrews love. They obsessively love it. In this case, verse 13 and 14 are compared and mirrored in order to contrast them. Okay? Have you ever heard, and I know you have, but I'm going to put it in question form, have you ever heard someone talk about sexual appetite as just a natural craving like one's appetite for food? The body craves it, just like food. We might have found ourselves thinking along these lines. The body, man, ah, uh, uh, I want to eat. I want to enjoy pleasure, intimacy. So, watch. Why is it sin to satisfy? My sexual appetites, if it's not a sin to satisfy my stomach's appetites for food. If it's just a natural bodily appetite, how could one be wrong and the other okay? You see where this is going? You see how they're thinking? Furthermore, not only that, but here in the New Covenant, didn't Jesus throw off all those old food laws of the Old Covenant? You see? So what's the natural conclusion? Why wouldn't the same apply to sexual love affairs? Come on, it's just it's, it's a big deal. It's just a body. This body's going to die. It's going to die. We're going to get a new one. Our sexual activities are as irrelevant as our meals. It's like a little snack. I get hungry, I munch. I long for intimacy. Why not? After all, the body is made for sex and sex for the body and God's going to get rid of sex and this mortal body. So that's how they're thinking. Paul's actually, he's invoking what the Corinthians are saying. If we're not careful, we'd read verse 13 and 14 and go, oh, or we're going to read verse 13 and think, oh, is Paul, is Paul prescribing this? No, he's saying, you're saying stuff like this. Eh, the body's made for food the, food, the food for the stomach, stomach for food, God's going to get rid of them both, doesn't really matter. Whoa, you're thinking wrongly. Paul says the body isn't made for sex, but for Christ. God didn't make our body to destroy it, but to raise it. Where are you getting your theology, Greek folks? You guys listening to Joel? Ostinopoulos? Or Justinian Furtickicus? I mean, who are you listening to? For those of you that don't know, those are Justin. Justin Furtick? Why does that sound. Stephen Furtick. Stephenus Um Joel Steen. They're, they're false teachers, okay? Now, do you think that Jesus rose from death as a magic trick to show off? Don't you understand the same power will raise you from the dead? As food belongs in the stomach, and the stomach is the destination for food, so our body belongs to the Lord who died for it. And he, his resurrection, his life as it is now, He, being with him, is our final destination. The final destination of our body. Because he was raised, he'll raise our body to life. Stop thinking this fatalistic, pagan mentality. Men of Corinth were saved by the legions from a religion. Think about this, guys. We live in a sexual culture, for sure. I don't know of a worldly culture that isn't sexual, Even the most conservative cultures are sexual. Uh, You think of Islam, right? Very, very covered and modest. And yet, what's the promise? What's the drive to go kill yourself for Islam, for the jihad? Eternal sex. Sexual values dominate cultures and Corinth was no exception. These men had been saved from a religion that relied on sex with temple prostitutes. Can you imagine being saved out of that where not only you were just promiscuous, not only you were sleeping around, not only you were just doing whatever with anyone, but you thought it actually pleased the gods to do that. This, They came with baggage, as we do when God saves us. Simultaneously, they suffered under Aristotelian philosophy, which questions the eternality of the soul. Someone say, deny the eternality of the soul. And then you have Platonic philosophy, that's Aristotle and Plato, which denies the resurrection of a body. Notice this, as many Christian scholars do today, does Paul attempt to extend an olive branch to Aristotelian or Platonic philosophy? He said, hey, let's find some common ground here. He try to befriend worldly thoughts. This is what's dominating the schools. If you want to be well-respected in the world, you've got to go with this stuff. Does he try to find a common... Let's, let's just be friends. Read on with me. Point two, biblical theology revives the soul. Partial or poor theology will lead you to sin. Biblical theology, theology emerging from what the Bible teaches, will revive your soul. Verses 15 to 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your body is a body part of Christ. When did you last reflect on that reality? Your body is a body part of the king in heaven. Jesus feels with us more intensely than you and I feel with our neurological system, every one of our little body bits. He feels with us sympathetically. He feels deeper the things that we experience, deeper than we do. This is not a metaphor. I'm going to repeat that. This is not a metaphor. This is a matter of fact. Changed my life when I realized that. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. I find great comfort in the fact that That the Bible was written to churches like this, composed of men and women, but in this case, predominantly men, who were still struggling with going down to have sex with a temple prostitute. It reminds me that our God is very patient with us, and He is gracious. And he sanctifies slowly, slower than we would hope. But here you've got those in the church who need to hear Paul say this. What are you doing taking the body parts of Christ who died for sin and putting them together with prostitutes? That should never be. Would you enter Heaven's Throne Room, approach Jesus, take his foot, and then smash it into dog feces? That doesn't even remotely touch how vulgar we use our bodies if we use them for sexual pleasure outside of marriage. Do do you realize you do just as much to his real body when you misuse your body. Uh, what is the first truth that Paul learned? Paul, who writes this letter, what's the first truth that Paul learned directly from Jesus? The first Christian truth that Paul learned from Jesus was this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my people, me. When they hurt, I hurt. They're my body. I am totally in solidarity With him. The first thing he learned is that Christ's people are his body. First thing he learned Jesus the man is safe in heaven, but his body is hurting on earth. We are his body. Not a metaphor. Matter of fact. Shouldn't it bewilder us that we ever use our body for sin? Now, would we stick our nose up to the ancient Greeks who were sleeping with temple prostitutes in worship of demons and yet not grieve how poorly we care for our own bodies, including that with which we soak our brains, which is part of our body? Or do you not know, Paul says, that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her. For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, something supernatural occurs with sexuality, something mystical. I would venture to say, deep, profound, mysterious, miraculous connection occurs. There is nothing whatsoever casual about sex. Ever. The two become one. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physiologically, millions of, if not billions, attempt to stifle that fact by flooding their lives with sex. But everyone knows this is true. It's a tale as old as time. As Paul quotes Genesis 2, creation, before the fall, this is is by God's design. Male, female, heterosexuality, Monogamy, committed, faithful marriage. That is God's design. We heard God's compassion last time. We heard God's compassion, God's, let's even go further, God's eagerness, God's zeal, God's craze to save sexual sinners from all sorts of sexual sin. Go back and read the first verses of this chapter and see, that is his heart. Where the world wants you to believe that Christianity is all about damning people of a certain brand of sin, the Bible stands aloud like a lion and says, no, our God loves to forgive and heal and restore and redeem all sorts of sinners. There's not a type of sinner that God does not love to save. Now, he's only compassionate toward those who know I'm a sinner and I need grace or else I cannot stand before God. They join themselves to the Lord. They become one with him as the same Holy Spirit who is on him and who knit him together in his virgin mother's womb is in us. One in spirit is not a sentimental slogan. It is reality. It is a reality. This is not, hey, if I were to come up to Luke and say, Luke and I are one, man. We're just one. It would just be a sentimentality. But when the Lord says that he makes us born again from above, He puts something of God's nature in us and saving us. He gives us the righteousness of God. He makes us a new creation. And there is a real oneness between us and the triune God. An unbreakable oneness. A oneness that we feel when we are close with the Lord in his word and in prayer and in worship and in fellowship. A oneness we equally sense when we sin and the grief seems unbearable it's the same oneness lastly glorify God in your body verses 18 to 20 flee sexual immorality run from it fly from it I'll never forget Paul Washer argues that sexual temptation is more powerful than Satan himself since we're told to resist the devil and he will flee from you but we're ordered to Not to resist sexual temptation, but to flee from it. Fight with Satan. He'll run. Oh, when sexual temptation comes, you run. Get out of there. Don't resist it. Run. Sexual immorality is any sexuality outside of marriage. Any sexuality outside marriage. Yeah, but we've been dating for a while. You're not married. Yeah, but we're engaged. You're not married. Any sexuality. And that includes engagement the night before you get married. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are currently sinning sexually, consider you are doing one of two things. You are either sinning against your sibling or you're sinning against someone who's going to hell. That's it. You're either sinning against brother or sister, or you're sinning against someone hellbound. Helps us to put things in clear terms to protect that marriage bed, which must be held in honor among all. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. The crime of sexual sin isn't only against that other person, it's against your own self, it's against your own body. How often we forget, sadly, that the brain is not the mind. The brain is, is body. It's an organ in the body. The mind siphons through information from the organ of the brain. But, but the body's part, the, but the brain's part of the body. And the body is impacted. It's, it's marked by experiences. And the brain has these memories and the body carries with it the impact of the emotions and the hormones. It's a big storehouse. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Do you not know this, believer? You hear how he's talking to you? Do you really not know this? Of course, you know this. Your body. He's not just talking about your mind, or your heart, or or your will, or your soul, but your physical body is the place where God himself lives uniquely. That's just amazing. The um, omnipresent God somehow uniquely dwells in your body, not the immaterial part of you, in the physical part of you. just as we saw the Shekinah glory of God descend and fill the temple after Solomon built it and pervaded it so that the priest had to escape because it was so thick, it was so overwhelming, so also the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, fills our body to rule and to reign for Christ's sake. The Holy Spirit, notice, is not on you. He's not before you. He's not beside you. He's not above or below or near or facing you. He's inside you. And the Holy Spirit is not some reward for effort. It's not some reward for your good doing. It's not some reward for your religion or your spirituality or some other person's blessing on you or your personal piety. The Holy Spirit is given from God, freely, by grace, alone, because of the work of Christ alone. We should be walking around humbly like the richest people on the planet because that is what we are. Do you not know, verses 19 to 20, that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body. You are totally free now. But free people don't parade their rights because they know they are owned by the perfect master. Christians are infinitely more concerned with their responsibilities to one another than they are to their own private rights. It stings all of us to hear, including yours truly. You don't belong to you. You belong to him. He made you. He owns you. He rules you. He died to save you. You were bought. And the price was high. King's blood. What, therefore, is the only sane use of your body? Glorify God. Magnify God. Showcase God in your body. How you dress it. How you treat it. How you show it. How you use it. Glorify God with that body. Father, we thank you that you bought sinners by the blood of Christ. We thank Christ who stands to advocate and intercede, to sympathize with us. We ask, Father, that you would send this this word home to our hearts by your Spirit, and that you would provoke us to worship and obedience. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out calchristiancollege.edu. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.